You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is great to be with you. Thank you. It's a little bit uh, different than the last time I was preaching. <clears throat> We're in a building. There's air conditioning. It's not 45 uh, on average Celsius. <clears throat> but I see a lot of smiling faces, which I saw over there. And your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's great to be here. And William and I thank you for your prayers. Um, it was a life-changing experience for uh, my son and I. And we really saw the Holy Spirit leading, um, keeping us safe, using um, simple guys uh, to bless and encourage the church. And even more than we encouraged them, they encouraged us. And that's what I told them, is that we've benefited more from our time I think, than they did from us. And I really thank Pastor Mark uh, for handling things while I was away. He's the best co-pastor I could ever ask for. And so I want to give to you today some lessons from India, lessons God taught me, uh, reaffirmed in me. Um, Before I go into that, though, I want to just remind some, or some of you don't know why even when. So why did we go? Well, about uh, a couple dozen years ago, um, a doctor in town named Dr. Terry Shute, he's gone uh, to heaven now. He started, uh, he took a trip to India uh, to see where his grandmother was a missionary in southeastern India. Now, I'm not going to say where it is um, because uh, whoever might be listening, because we what we were doing there wasn't on a tourist uh, wasn't a part of the tourist visa that we had been authorized to go through. But he went there um, and he wanted to see where his grandmother had been a missionary. And when he was there, he fell in love with the people and he realized the great poverty. Um, a lot of us just think of like India as Delhi and Mumbai have the great slums, but in fact, slums are everywhere. Um, and most of rural India is dirt poor. And so he went there and, and there was all these kids uh, that didn't know the Lord and that were uh, hungry and disease-ridden. So he helped to get these 20, what is now 28, children's centers up and running where children come in, uh, they give them basic nutrition, they teach them the gospel, give them the Bible, and it's the children going out and sharing the gospel um, with other children who are coming to faith, who are growing up, and that is how the church is growing. I'll tell you more about that. So we went there to see uh, these things that the church, Calvary, has been sponsoring and giving money to for the last three years. We went there to train, uh, help. We ran a pastor's conference um, to train 120 lay leaders because there's only one paid pastor out of about 50 churches um, in the surrounding area. And so um, just teaching them um, basic pastoral ministry uh, stuff. Then we also went to encourage the church uh, for all the work that they're doing because there's a limited number of them doing a tremendous amount of work. And we just went uh, to bless 
them and to bring, um, as some of you donated, funds um, to help with the ministry because now the Indian government has totally closed off our, our way of getting money into India because they want, by 2025, India to be a completely um, non-Christian nation, meaning just essentially choke off the Christians that are there. So we had to get the money in um, with some creative ingenuity. And we did, and so that was uh, one of the things. What do we do there? Well, I preached uh, on average five times a day, sometime, one time nine times a day, um, <clears throat> and I only really prepared a certain amount of messages. In, in India, time isn't of a thing. Like in here, service starts at nine, service starts at 11, not so. Their time uh, in India, it's just, a, it's just a thing. It doesn't really matter. Um, service might start at eight, but... People aren't showing up until 8.30, 9 o'clock. Uh, service might be scheduled or in the pastor's mind to go two hours, but it might go three and a half hours. Uh, time really is relative uh, there. And so um, also is sermon preparation. So a number of times I'd just be there and he'd be a house church and he'd say, these people are really dealing with sickness or they've been really oppressed uh, by the Hindus lately. Preach to them, brother. I'd be like, oh, Okay. And at one time I was preaching and he said, like, make us 20 minutes. And so I preached 20 minutes. And now he's translating for me because the pastor speaks English pretty well and most people don't. Um, and he's like, so I'm like 20 minutes and I wrap things up and he's like, 15 more minutes. I was like, hoi, yo, yo. So it was, a, <clears throat> it was a big uh, stretch for me and really had to be dependent on God. What am I going to say, God. Um, and we gave out 300 Bibles um, to those that Christians that didn't have Bibles, and we prepared hundreds of food packages with, again, the funds that you had provided and distributed amongst those amongst the Christians who are really in hardship. Um, how did we live? A typical day before I go into what God taught me is we'd, I'd be up around 5 a.m., and <clears throat> the pastor would pick us up. Um, we were at a location about half an hour drive away from the main area we were operating in. Um, and the town is uh, 50,000 people, um, and surrounding area is tens of thousands more, the villages. And so um, we, were, we would get travel brought in to there, and uh, our location was only known by the pastor and one other person because uh, the Hindus were, wanted to know where we were because the last time missionaries came there, uh, they tried to bash down the doors um, and get the missionaries out of there. So um, we would then hit house church after house church. It was only the pastor's conference and the tent meetings, the evangelical tent meetings. That Those are the only things that were planned. Everything else was spontaneous. That way, uh, the less planning, the less knowledge it is for the Hindus who could come and break it up. And so he would just call the um, church and he'd say, gather up this church. And within an hour, half an hour sometimes, the church would be uh, there. No emails, uh, no children's ministry needed. It would just appear. Um, and now when I say church, I mean um, the church is 80 to 90% women and children. That's the Indian church, very much like the church in Acts. And so <clears throat> the men that are there, they're in it to win it, and there's no messing around. Uh, but the, the women would just rally the kids, and they'd, they'd be there. And then they would, we would wrap things up, and a few times they had to get us out early because it was at night. Um, the groups were starting to form, and they were worried that um, the Hindus were going to come in and uh, start 
doing some things which um, in that area, sometimes they'll bash windows, sometimes they'll come in and smash the chairs, do that sort of thing. Um, in the more remote parts, even than that, they'll go in and kill the pastor and kill other people. So they didn't want any of that. So the pasture was switched on uh, 100%. We would end, we always came in, the earliest we came in was 11.30 um, at night, the latest was 1.30 at night. So that was a typical day. And Indians have tremendous stamina for a work. Like they make, like I couldn't do that more than a month, I think I'd probably implode the pace that these people can keep up at. So I, before I start into what God taught me, I want to just make it clear, the Indian church is not perfect. They have lots of things that uh, they need to work on, um, things that we could teach them. But there are some very uh, key things that they could teach us and that they did teach me and that we need to really uh, take a look at the way we do our faith and we live our lives um, and take that to God. And so before I go into those six things, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the day because it's a gift. We shouldn't take it for granted. We shouldn't take anything for granted. It's by grace you have saved us. By your miraculous mercy, you have called us out of darkness and into light. You've given us the people that are around us for a time to enjoy. There are our brothers and sisters. Lord, it feels like I'm on a different planet back here. Um, but I'm with your brothers and sisters. So help us to learn uh, from your church in India. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So number one, if you're following along, there are um, points in your bulletins. Number one, happiness is not found in what you own, but in who owns you. This is what they taught me. Happiness is not found in what you own, but in who owns you. See, happiness is this sort of elusive beast uh, that we are chasing after in Canada and the Western countries. Uh, we want to be happy. And so, and so we, we look for happiness. And maybe you remember when you got your first job and you're like, this is great. I got my first job. I'm so happy. And then the happiness wore off. Or you remember when you got your first car, right? And you're like, I'm so happy with this car. And then that wore off. It's this thing that we're constantly chasing, but few people are ever actually happy or content or full of joy for more than a few weeks. And so what do we do? Well, when those things don't please us, then we say, I'll find a spouse. And that spouse will make me happy. And then we realize we didn't marry Jesus. And this person is flawed and sinful. And ah, I'm not so happy with my spouse anymore. So we say, let's have some children, because children will make me happy, right? And then we realize they're little sinners. And ah, I'm not so happy anymore. And so we go after vacations and new careers and bigger houses and, and hobby farms and jewelry and big bank accounts and, and all the things that we think will make us happy. But the reality is, and we can see it around us in our country, is we're the most prosperous, uh, wealthy group of Canadians in the history of the world, uh, probably one of the most uh, prosperous groups of middle-class people. Uh, even uh, the poorest people in Canada uh, live a better life than most people in India. And yet, most people are not happy in our country. Most Christians are not actually content, not actually happy. Well, why is that? Because often we're looking for happiness in the things that God gives us and not in God himself. And they really taught me 
because they have nothing. And so when you have nothing, you're forced to find your contentment in Jesus Christ. That when you're poor, you're actually rich. Reminded me of when I was sitting there one day of the church in Laodicea. Jesus said to them, uh, they were a fairly wealthy, prosperous church. They've been around for about 30 years. And, and Jesus said to them in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, you say you're rich. You think you have become wealthy and don't need anything, but you don't know that you are really miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Sometimes I think that's really what many people in Canada are. We think we're so rich, but we're really not. But in rural India, as I interacted with uh, several thousand people over the time, um, probably half of them being Christians, I, I realized as I looked at them that they're, they're dirt poor, um, that, that, that they live in shacks, most of them. Uh, they have dead-end labor jobs, as I'll talk about a little bit more. Uh, a lot of them are living hand-to-mouth, so, so they're just trying to get enough to, to provide for their family that day. They have little ability to make their situation better. And yet, what William and I really realized, and he said this, and because it, it really stuck out to him, is these people are genuinely content with their life. They found happiness amongst the hardship. And their happiness was coming from their faith in Jesus Christ. That God cared enough about them. Uh, so the Hindus didn't like them. Uh, so they had hardship and persecution. But God loves me. God, the king of the universe, actually cared enough for me. That gave them joy and contentment. There's one person that stuck in my mind the entire time. It would be Shiresh. This is him in the blue shirt. That's his, his house behind. And no, that's not a satellite dish for cable. Uh, that he's got strung to a radio. He lives there with his wife and two children and his sister and their child's sister, a widow, as many uh, ladies are. And what I saw in this man was a genuine faith and contentment with his hard life. That's inside of their house. Their, their floor is dirt. Uh, for two months usually of the year, their house floods in monsoon season. That'll be coming up July, August. And they have to move up on top of a hill for two months of the year. He is a laborer, uh, so he just works in the fields. His son there in the yellow, he had dangan fever <clears throat> when I was there. They don't have access to medicine. Uh, the, the pastor refers to their church as the swamp church because they live next to a swamp. And he's one of the elders. He cares for the, the church and for the people around that little swamp. When he doesn't have enough money to buy food, the pastor tells me that he hunts swamp rats and his family eats swamp rats. That would be a weekly thing. And I watched him and his wife. We did an outreach there, um, and there was several hundred people there. There was both uh, Hindus and Christians. And, and I watched him and his wife as they were worshiping um, and, and he and his wife took around a big bucket of water and, and he held it and his wife spoon-fed water and they would hand the cup and then the person would drink it and they'd go to the next person. And they did that amongst the, the 100 or 200 people that were there. And they did it with contentment and they did it with happiness, not asking for a single thing in 
return. And I just, I watched him as I was spent several days with him. And there was this genuine contentedness in Jesus Christ. And, and I thought, I don't have what he has. If my life was like his life, I don't know if I'd have, be as happy as he is. And yet he had something magical in him. I think he had what Paul had in Philippians chapter 4. When Paul said in verse 11, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances I find myself in. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. I think Paul and Shoresh have something that we often don't have. They've found this contentment in the God who created them, in the God who saved them. And you know what? Like, it was amazing. I didn't know this, but in the rural areas, about 95% of marriages are arranged. So the parents decide who you will marry, and you don't meet that person and go through the interview process. It's pretty unbelievable that I asked the pastor and his wife, when's the first time they met? And he said, well, I saw her. I got to see her for about a minute uh, through a window. The first time we actually met was when they brought us into the room to get married. And then it's like, okay, you're now followers of Christ. Here's who you're marrying. Make it work. And that was the same with Shuresh. But he and his wife loved each other, and I saw genuine affection between them, more than I see in most marriages where people got to choose who they want to be with. How is that possible that we can be so struggling with, I don't like that person, and they annoy me, and yet these people who had no choice in who they're marrying are so content? That's the Holy Spirit living in them. That's God changing them. That's God filling them. And I see their family is secure. They're not going to break up. Where are they going to go? They've got each other, each other in Christ. And those kids are going to grow up. They're going to see the faith of their parents, and and they're going to follow Christ too. And, you know, I had to really think about, as I was watching these people, if, if everything was stripped away from me, if I had no more, if I didn't have a house and I didn't have nice clothes and I didn't have health care and, and I had to hunt raccoons to feed my children, I wasn't a pastor anymore, would I still be content with just being a Christian? Would you be content with just being a follower of Christ? Would he be enough for you? Second thing he taught me is there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. For most of the world, there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. Sometimes uh, I think of Disneyland. Been to Disneyland? It used to be fun and cool. I wouldn't say it is anymore. Uh, But when I was there as a kid, I remember you walk through these gates and, and... and it was just magical. You could eat all sorts of amazing foods, and you could go on these rides, and there's, there's all your favorite, uh, you know, there's Mickey Mouse, and there's Donald Duck, and, and, and it was just so neat. Um, but it's not real. It's, it's not really the way the world lives. You step out of the gates, you're back in the U.S., right? Sometimes I think that we Canadians, we Westerners, we live in Disneyland. The way we live as Christians really isn't the way the majority of the Christians in the world live. There's a cost for them to follow Christ. And now, now we may have 
costs. Uh, most of them aren't really costs. We may say, well, there's a cost. I give a tithe to the church. I, I'm not talking about that cost. You may say, well, there's a cost. I, 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 I volunteer in Sunday school once a month. That's a cost. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a deep cost. The kind of cost uh, that Jesus says you have to deny yourself for. Some of you know that deep cost. Some of you have been rejected by your family outright because you follow Jesus Christ. Some of you have been rejected by your spouse outright. Why is that? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 17, why is it that people hate Christians? He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. If the world hates you, understand that it hates me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Remember the word that I had spoken to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you as well. If they have kept my word, then they will keep yours. They would have kept yours as well. But if they treat you like this, it's because of my name since they do not know the one who sent me. We've enjoyed in our country a, a small little window where we got to live in this sort of fantasy land, where, where you could be a Christian and, and it was actually a benefit uh, that the people around you like liked you more, but that is going away. In India, there's a cost every day. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, it means it's going to cost you something. For this family... means their son doesn't get good health care. If you see, he's got a uh, um, trach right here where he has to get fed and where he breathes through. Why is that? Because uh, to Hindus, they'll get government health care. Uh, but to the Christians in that province, they don't get government health care unless they pay for it. And if it's if they pay for it, it's often second-rate health care. This family can't afford it. So whereas the Hindu would get free health care, their son won't get health care. That's a cost to following Jesus Christ in that country. This is my son praying for a couple of kids around his age. He can go to college. All he's got to do is, is uh, pay for it. But he can go. And there, there's several steps. Um, if there's, there's a certain number of spots if you want to be a doctor, nurse, military. And you've got to write this universal test. And then you test, and your ranking goes in the, uh, with everyone in the province. And then you get told which school you're going to. Uh, but here's the thing. Hindus automatically rank above Christians, even if Christians have a better mark. So their ability to go to school is limited. Why is that? It's to keep Christians at the lower spots in the world. That's a cost that those young men have to pay for that my son doesn't have to pay. It's a cost for this man. Now, this man um, bought a pond. See, in that area, the farming, the main industry is fish farming. So they have these ponds where they raise fish and they sell them. He bought one. The Hindus came along and poisoned it. And there was no justice in the courts uh, because when there's a Hindu and a Christian, the Hindus will always win. There's a cost to that man. He has to have a, a low-end business. There's a cost for women in India. India has the, the highest uh, sexual assault uh, statistics in the world towards women. 
And Christian women are a number one target. And often widows, which there are a lot of, are forced to work in Hindu homes of successful Hindus as servants. And often the men will force themselves upon the women. And there is no recourse for the women because, again, a Hindu's word always trumps a Christian word. And I prayed for a couple of the women that had had this happen to them. There's a cost to following Jesus Christ. See, Disneyland is dead in India They understand what Jesus said when he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after him. And I had to find my, ask myself, would I follow Jesus Christ? If there was a cost, what cost is too much for me? When would I say I'm done with you, God? We should all ask ourselves that question. Number three thing God taught me is faith is what binds us all together. Faith. Because the church is supernatural. It it has no borders. It has no official nationality. It has no official color of its skin. It has no predominant culture. It is not have does not have a defining worship style. See, the supernatural uh, part of the church is that God calls people out of darkness, fills them with their His Holy Spirit, and makes them one family. That's an amazing thing. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians when he said, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for you are all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, no male, nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And that's what I found. There we were, uh, people with no connection, no real, no, nothing really. Our lives are completely different. And yet, when I was with them, I felt like they were my family. They were my brothers and sisters. I, I genuinely loved being with these people. They brought me into their home and into their churches and my son and treated us like royalty, even though they had nothing to give. Whatever they had to give, they gave it. The pastor took uh, this picture of us leaving. Uh, that home uh, was a wonderful little home church uh, where the family takes care of dozens of children, uh, gives themselves their seniors, and instead of checking out and watching soaps all day, they give themselves to, to helping these little children. And I just felt so connected to these people. I, I, I was holding back and not just crying like a baby as I was leaving. And, you know, question we have to ask ourselves is, the church in Canada is becoming less and less white. And so as more and more Caucasian people walk away from faith, that's not happening in the rest of the world. There are more people immigrating to Canada, Christians immigrating, uh, and they're moving out of Toronto because it's too expensive, and they're making their way further and further north. And, and over the next decade, this place was going to become less and less white. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we welcome those brothers and sisters in if they're different than us, if they eat different things, if they dress differently, but if they have one common bond being their faith in Jesus Christ, will you invite them into your church as they invited me into their church? Number four, God's word is fully sufficient. I was just reminded of this again. Because in, in the West, you know, I'm all, I love education. I think it's good. I love other books. I love to read books. But, but we, we seem to have forgotten that God says, this is my word, and this is the most important book you should memorize. Read other books, but if you're not reading this book, 
you're reading the wrong books. And, and to them, they don't have options for other books. There's no Christian bookstore in the corner. There's no Amazon to order the newest, latest, greatest book. The book they want to read is the Word of God. And it's sufficient for them. It's all they need to learn about who God is and how to live as Christians. They know Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in them. God, they look at God's word as the most important words. And, and I think sometimes we lost that in Canada. Oh, there's the Bible. I've read that a couple times. I need to read something new, something new and exciting. We have this thing in the West called deconstructing our faith, where we, we look and we say, because we're so advanced and so enlightened, and that's why our country is going in such a good uh, direction, is that, uh, you know, 2,000 years they found the Bible sufficient, but we've determined that this part is not right and this part is not right, and we're going to deconstruct our faith and make a faith that we desire. That's not happening in the rest of the world. That's a Western thing. God's word is sufficient. And when we gave them Bible, it was, it was like we gave them a piece of gold. They were so overjoyed with, this is my Bible? My Bible? I get to keep this myself? It was amazing to see. Number five, God taught me and reminded me that the church is meant to be so much more than we think it is. When I say the church, I mean the local church. It reminded me of what I read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what the first church looked like and what it looked like for a few centuries. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed throughout the apostles. Through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property and distributed the proceeds to all, any who had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from the house and they ate the food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all people. Every day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. So let me just give you a glimpse into what the church looks like there because it looks very different there than what it looks here. So the pastor was a third-generation pastor. His dad was the pastor, and his grandfather was the one who started the church in, in the town. Now, uh, it was started by Canadian missionaries who went there in the 18th century. So that's who converted his family uh, many generations ago. And that's why they have a soft spot uh, for Canadians in their hearts. Now, there's this one church in the town. There's a few other churches in the town where there's actually a paid pastor. Uh, but there's this one church, Calvary. And so they help oversee about 50 churches throughout the town and in the surrounding villages, upwards to about 50 kilometers outside of the town. And so he, the pastor and his wife, they take a scooter, and these people ride scooters like nobody's business. I have never seen anything like it. Four of them stacked on a little scooter, driving and weaving throughout traffic. It's just unbelievable. I would definitely kill myself. <clears throat> but he'll drive out, and this is their life. They support these churches. And so that's why we called all the pastors together, provided for them to get there, and we, we did this training for them. So these little churches are just community churches. So Because most people don't have transportation. Um, they just make a church where their little community is. And that's their church, and so they get together. So uh, this was the second largest church that we uh, were in. It's one room. That's what it would look like. There's a fan at the top. 
The Hindus break the glass um, often, usually every year, so they have to replace the glass every year. <clears throat> you can see there's a few plastic chairs at the back. Everyone else sits on the floor. Adults, children, they all sit on the floor. They all get along. There's babies crying. Uh, there's noise, but it doesn't seem to distract people. They're focused on God. A church service can look like this. This one was what we commonly ran into, where it's just one room at the front of a building so that there's uh, good airflow where everyone sits and gathers, uh, younger people, older people, and they have a church service. Church services look like this. This one was in an alleyway. They just laid down a tarp. People brought their plastic chairs from their house, and they sat there. This is about 10, 10.30 at night uh, that this was going on. This was a two-hour service. So services would run anywhere from two hours, was usually the, uh, sometimes an hour and a half would be the shortest, up to three and a half hours. People go to service two to three times a week. Sunday service uh, <coughs> might look something like this. Uh, this was the evening, sorry, this was the evening Saturday service where we uh, did an outreach. And so this is at about 10.30 at night. You can see it, kids just passed out uh, there. There's people. There's about 400 people stacked. Uh, Sunday mornings, people show up about 6.37 for Sunday school where they read the Bible. And again, adults and kids together um, because it's a very different world than the way we live in. Um, and then they go home for dinner after about an hour and a half, or sorry, lunch after an hour and a half. Then they come back 10, 10.30, and the service goes for two to three hours after that. They're sitting in unair conditioned rooms uh, with a fan blowing over the top, uh, maybe they've got speakers, maybe they don't. We rented them for the out, uh, big outdoor ones. But the people are content. The people are full of joy. Let me show you what we're just wrapping up the last worship songs after three and a half hours this service was. <laughs> different than our services, isn't it? People are just content with being with each other. That's the main thing. They have a family. People love them. They have Jesus. Like, life is good, and this is the church. They live together. They study God's word together. They pray together. They come alongside each other together. Church looks so different there than it does here. And church is meant to be so much more than I show up Sunday. Maybe I move into the seat if somebody asks me to. Maybe I don't. Maybe I give half an hour of my time. Maybe I don't. Maybe I listen to what the pastor's saying. Maybe I don't. That's not the sort of Christianity that they see. It's meant to be so much more. We are meant to be a, a family of believers living life together, supporting each other. And these 50 churches run these 28 children's centers where every day children come, Muslim children, Hindu children, Christian children, and they feed them and they teach them. And nobody's paying these people to do this. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing to see. And you know, they don't have what we have in our church. I, one of the biggest weaknesses in the Canada's church, I think, for us to learn is entitlement. Because we are third generation rich, meaning we didn't earn the freedom we have, we didn't earn a lot of the prosperity we have, it was given to us generationally, 
is we have this sense of entitlement. So sometimes people shop for a church, they shop and they hop, and they go to a church looking for one that exactly meets what they think a church should be. So they go in with, if the church doesn't do this, this, and this, then I'm not being a part of it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't look for a good church. You want to make sure a church is Bible-believing, it upholds Christ, um, and that the people genuinely want to follow him. Uh, But there is this idea of that I can just shop around until I find the perfect one, but that doesn't exist. There's no perfect church except for the one in heaven. It's full of a bunch of flawed sinners, just like you. And so people walk around with this sort of mentality. So there's people constantly coming in. There's people constantly leaving. Pastors become performers because, because they're, they're so worried about, oh, people are, am I going to upset somebody? Am I, am I not going to be cool enough, flashy enough, interesting enough? People are always comparing them to the pastors they hear on my favorite pastors in Florida, and if I don't like you, I'm going to listen to him. Like, it's, it's so dysfunctional, and that sort of Christianity doesn't build the church. The other part is it's not just with younger people who are shopping around. It's sometimes with older people. They have a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to my church never changing, and for people to just do what I want to do, and if it changes, I'm just going to complain about it. And I'm not going to be a benefit to it. And I'm not going to encourage and get to know any of the new people because they're weird. And I just want things to be my way. You don't find this in the church in India. If they follow Christ, it means they're banding together with these brothers and sisters in their local area. And they're going to make it work for the kingdom's sake. Last thing, God, I want to tell you about what God taught me. And it's this. It's a simple truth. That Jesus is enough. I was reminded that faith in Jesus Christ is enough, that God is actually supernaturally able to grow his church, to give Christians joy. He is enough to make them happy. He is enough to sustain them through the trials. He is enough. His word is enough to provide a lamp unto their feet. Hindus, there are are essentially 300 million gods, uh, and I kid you not that number, 300 million gods that have been identified uh, in the Hindu faith. There is one in the south. They have a temple uh, dedicated to a moped where they worship a moped. There is a temple dedicated to rats where they go and worship the rats. There is a temple dedicated to snakes where they dedicate the snakes. And uh, these are all over the place. They're idols, statues. And people go to them and they worship them. And here's the idea uh, when I was understanding, uh, trying to understand the Hindu faith is they go and they worship an idol. And if their life gets better, then that's the God they worship for a while until their life doesn't go well. And then they switch to a new one and try that out for a while. And they jump from God to God to God until they find one that suits their own life. And sometimes that's the way we can be, right? I'll follow you, God, today when my life is going well. But when it's not going well, well, then I'm going to pursue something else for a little while. Because the simple message of the gospel isn't enough to keep me interested in. The God that presents himself isn't quite enough. But he's enough. He's enough. God is enough. Jesus is enough. He's enough for them. And he's enough for us. We don't want to be like the church in Ephesus that... Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. Is he enough for you? 
But you always have to have something new and exciting in your life. Is simple faith in him, is his salvation enough for you? Would you follow him? If, if that's what your life was like, if church was, we get together, we sit on a tarp, and, and we sing songs, and it's all out of tune, and, and, and we go through God's word, and maybe the person has no teaching, no uh, training whatsoever, and they just say what the Holy Spirit puts in their mind, would that be enough for you? Would you still follow Jesus? Would you still go to church? It's the question I was wrestling with. It's the question we should wrestle with. And as I watched these people, simple one night when we were doing one of the services, this simple song radiated into my mind. And I was just singing it in my mind. It's the song that I used to sing my kids uh, when they were really little. It's the simple message that changed my life 15 years ago that, that sometimes I forget with all the noise of the first world, all the things biting for my attention. It was written by a woman in 1860 named Anna Barlett Warren. It goes like this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm weak and ill. From his shining throne on high comes to watch me where I lie. Jesus loves me. He will stay close beside me all the way. Then his little children will take up to heavens for his dear sake. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Is that enough for you? If that's the only message you have, is that enough for you? Let's pray and then we're going to remember and take communion together. God, Thank you so much that our identity is in you, that you love us so much, that you, God, came to this earth. You're not a statue. We don't need to switch gods every week. You are living and active. I saw you in India. I saw you in the faces of those people. I saw you at work in sustaining them. I saw you at work in the happiness you would put in their hearts. God, I've seen you 